All right, well, welcome to our final week in the book of Revelation. We're still going to meet next week. Uh, I'll talk at the end of time tonight about what we're uh, going to do next week. But this is our, we'll, we'll finish going through the book this evening, which is exciting. So uh, good job if you've made it all the way through. I know it's been, um, been a good amount of time and there's been a lot of, a lot of stuff. So uh, let's open it with a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word, which has been so good to go through together over these past few months. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together to discuss your divinely inspired message for us. You are infinitely wise and you have chosen to communicate to us in a specific way and you've chosen to do that through your word, especially in a book like Revelation. Sometimes we might question why you didn't do it differently, why you uh, chose to do it this way, yet there is so much uh, beauty and there is so much richness to this book and to the entire, entire Bible, and we thank you for all, all the riches that we are able to to mine for the rest of our lives as we follow Christ and as we are transformed by the word. So I pray that you would do that tonight, that you would continue to use your word to transform us. Would you bless our time and our discussion? We thank you for what this book tells us about Jesus Christ and especially the, the final verses of this book, which are the final verses of the entire Bible. What a fitting ending as they end with a, a, a prayer, a, a call, Lord Jesus, come. So we ask that same thing. We, we pray, come Lord Jesus, and especially as we're in a season of Advent, as we reflect on your first, on the first coming of your Son, we also can look forward to the future return when all things will be made right. It's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen. Uh, so before we, we, we dive into the rest of chapter 22, which we touched on the first few verses last week, uh, it's a bit of a, a shorter chapter, so I hope we'll have some, some time to go through all of that and also some time at the end to recap and reflect on the book. Um, I did want to briefly walk through one of the handouts that I, I gave you. It's, it's titled Intertextuality in the Bible. Um, I spent a, a while putting this together this weekend. Um, it, it's something that I, I believe is, is very important. It's something that we've talked about throughout our study. And, and in fact, this topic is probably one of my favorite um, things to talk about when it comes to studying the Bible. And it plays a major role in um, biblical theology, which I introduced a few weeks ago and which we'll be talking about next week. And so uh, just a, a simple definition. Um, a simple definition is, uh, of intertextuality is the study of links between and among texts. Um, this is more of a, this kind of a shorter essay that I put together and then there's some definitions at the end um, that, that I'll be, be using. So a longer definition is, is something like this. So intertextuality is the intentional connection between and among biblical texts 
by which a later text refers to an earlier text to enhance its own meaning and creatively develop and reflect on the meaning of the earlier text. It's also referred to as inner biblical exegesis or inner biblical allusion. Um, and there's some important things in, uh, in this to note. It's a, a later text reflecting on an earlier text often. Uh, most often that's going to be um, the New Testament using the Old Testament. But you also, in the Old Testament, something that a lot of people uh, sometimes gloss over is the fact that the Old Testament itself is developing um, its messages from earlier in the in the Old Testament. So the the themes of the Pentateuch you see in the and the Torah you see those come out in the prophets and in the writings, especially this messianic hope and the, the theme of the land. You see those things developed, uh, and a lot of times you see them developed in the Old Testament and then picked up on in the New Testament. And so uh, intertextuality on a, on a broad scale is just studying these connections, studying how, um, how a later text is going to use an earlier text, um, being aware of that. And it becomes very important because it, it's one of, one of the main literary or, or textual strategies that scriptural authors use. They, they build off of uh, what comes before them. They don't just write uh, their, their books, their passages, their, uh, their texts to stand alone. They are in line with a, a whole tradition of, of scripture. And so uh, when scholar John Salhammer, who I was just mentioning to Jennifer earlier, puts it like this, he says, many written texts, especially biblical ones, were written with full awareness of other texts in mind. Their authors assumed the readers would be thoroughly knowledgeable of those other texts. The New Testament books, for example, assume a comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament. Many Old Testament texts also assume their readers are aware and knowledgeable of other Old Testament texts. If there is an authorally intended intertextuality, then it stands to reason that some loss of meaning occurs when one fails to view the text in terms of it. Um, and so he defines it a bit, but also that last point is significant. If it is true that the author of a book has intended a connection with, uh, if, it's a, if, it's, if it's true that the author of Revelation intended a connection with something in Daniel, if you do not, if you do not observe that connection, if you do not um, see that and understand what he is doing, then you're going to miss out on the part of the meaning of that text. Um, what he says, some loss of meaning occurs if you fail to view the text in terms of it. And so if you were to just try and interpret a book like Revelation on its own, but even more simply like one of, one of the Gospels, something like Matthew, if you were to just try and interpret Matthew on its own without seeing the connection to all of the Old Testament stories and books and the entire narrative that it is drawing on, you're going to miss out on the meaning, uh, the, the, the book of Matthew example, it can't stand on its own. Um, I've pointed out some of those things a couple, a couple of weeks ago, even just last week, talking about um, things like the, the genealogy at the very beginning. Oh, cool, here's this genealogy that starts out, shows us you know, the, the line of Jesus and he, whatever, but you're, you're going to miss out on the, the richness of that and, and part of the intended meaning if you don't see how it's connected to what uh, what came before it in the Old Testament and the genealogies of Chronicles in the very beginning of Genesis, the, 
seed of the woman. Um, and so there's so many examples of that that could be given places where if you are not aware of these things, you're going to um, miss out. And so if this is true, the, that you lose aspects of the text's meaning, uh, if, you, if you're not aware of the, the text that they're alluding to or quoting from, we must diligently seek to become fluent in the language of the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. This also makes a foundational assumption about the context of any biblical passage. If you've been uh, taught, or uh, even in our study we've talked about interpreting scripture, you need to look at things in context. You run into problems when people pull things out of context. So often what we mean by that is don't just look at you know, one single verse, look at the verses around it, look at that whole chapter, maybe even the book, and that's great, and I agree with that. Um, but even more, the, meaning, the fullest meaning of a passage is found within the context of the entire Bible. The context ultimately is all of Scripture, and this is because the Bible, though containing many different books, many different authors, many different genres, it is one book, it's unified, it's inspired by God, and so there's a unity that weaves between all of the texts, all of the books, every single verse, and we need to see all of that um, in connection with one another. So here's a quote from uh, Kevin Manhuser. He says, the text must be read in light of its intentional context, that is, against the background that best allows us to answer the question of what the author is doing. For it is in relation to its intentional context that a text yields its maximal sense, its fullest meaning. If we are reading the Bible as the Word of God, therefore, I suggest that, con that the context that yields this maximal sense is the canon, the entire Bible, taken as a unified, communicative act. The books of Scripture, taken individually, may anticipate this whole, but the canon alone is its instantiation, its realization. And so, um, yes, the book has meaning on its own, but as a part of God's word, it does not stand on its own. And so to see the fullness of it, it must be seen, as he says, uh, in light of the whole canon, the, the, whole, um, the whole of scripture, the canon, or the 66 books that make up the Bible. And so um, that is the context of any given passage, it's, it's within the entirety of scripture. So what do you do with passages like Paul a few times refers to books that aren't in the canon? Uh, like, like what, can you do that? Oh, Enoch? Enoch, yeah. Okay. Uh, in, 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 in Jude? In Jude. I don't know for sure. There's a few other ones, too. Yeah. Um, so the question of uh, what books are, uh, the, the word is canonical, meaning they belong to um, the, the body of Scripture, the 66 books of Scripture, and there's a non-canonical book, a book that might be called Apocrypha, um, or another term, Pseudepigrapha, uh, what do you do if it references? And, and for the most part, um, Paul does not reference no, not books out of it. And uh, the, 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 there is one allusion um, to this extra biblical writing in the book of Jude. I think in that case, uh, you can 
you can understand what he is what he is doing and what um, and what the author is intending by looking at the book of Jude you don't need to have knowledge of it and he, it's not that he's even necessarily depending on that particular book that his readers needed to know it um, but on the larger scale I, I think that yeah we have we have God's word and it contains the 66 books and so that is the fuller context it's not expected that there are uh, that the that anything outside of that is is necessary and it also just on a more um, theological scope on our understanding of the Bible as divinely inspired understanding that it is from God we have these 66 books and so it is kind of a larger theological understanding that drives that no the, the, the context is all of scripture and so there's things that we could you know point to in scripture that would show us yes they have in mind this larger context we need to see the whole uh, and i think that's certainly assumed and expected and also a, then at the same time we have pushing this theological um motivation that this is this entire book is from god and so it's unified it is uh it is a coherent whole it's going to make sense together and needs to be understood in light of everything before and after it. So, um, so if, if, this is, if this is true, if we need to look at the entire, uh, entire Bible, if we need to understand what authors are, are doing by referring to, um, to other parts of the Bible, what is, what is then the best way to detect this intertextuality, this intentional linking of texts. Uh, I think the answer is by observing citations, allusions, echoes, and analogies. Now to define all those, and those are all on the, on the very last page, I just I gathered together all of the definitions that I gave you. They're all up here, but um, a, a quotation is an explicit citation or an implicit quote indicated by a verbatim reproduction of a chain of words easily recognizable from a known source text. Might also be referred to as a, a direct reference or uh, a citation. And these, are, these are easy, we're all, I think, aware of these. Uh, often in scripture, it's, it's going to be introduced with some sort of stock phrase, like Paul loves to say, as it is written, and then quote scripture. Or Matthew all the time says, and this was to fill the words of the prophet and then he'll quote scripture. And so a lot of times it'll be um, introduced with something like that. Uh, I love the author of Hebrews. He says, as it's, as it's written somewhere, and then he'll quote, uh, quote scripture. Um, often your English Bibles will indicate that by quotation marks. Maybe they'll set it off. They'll be, uh, it'll be in bold or italics, or there'll be a footnote that tells you where it's quoted from. And so these are, these are uh, pretty, pretty clear. We're pretty... Um, familiar with these. Uh, this is one way that, that authors will make, uh, make connections to earlier texts. They do it quite frequently. Um, I can't re remember the exact number of, of quotations or what, what are determined as direct quotations in the New Testament, but there's a lot, um, especially in the Gospels, books like Romans. Uh, Romans, it's over 60 times, and so uh, they're, they're quoting directly from scripture. Yeah. So, so, like, I don't think they didn't have, like, chapters and verses. Mm -hmm. Like, 
awkward. Like, <laughs> I just knew it. Because, yeah. Because That's why I said, as it is written somewhere. Yeah. 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 And so that is why sometimes you get, uh, if, if I'm writing a book that's going to be published and I quote something, I'm expected to give an exact representation of what this other person wrote. Even if they made an error when they typed it out, you still include the error and you include a note that says, you know, I'm, I didn't make the error, I'm copying their error. And you, you show page number, publishing, all these things, and it's quoted exactly. Um, in the biblical text, it's not always like that. And so you do have places where, um, where they're, it's a quote, and it's introduced like a quote, and yet maybe they're kind of combining a couple of verses together. Um, there's or they're even, or they're summarizing. There's there's times like uh, a really great example of this is in Ephesians Ephesians four, uh, when Paul he uses this introductory phrase. He says, "Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." Um, and then there's no verse reference. Where is he quoting from? Um, that's not a direct quote from anywhere. I think that it, what he's doing in, in Ephesians, there's a lot, of, a lot of similarities to themes in Isaiah. He draws on, uh, on the message of Isaiah, and he's just alluded to Isaiah as well. And, and he takes like two passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 52.1 and Isaiah 60, verse 1, and he kind of combines them together. He sees Christ in it, and he... And he makes it into something that is, it's, it's actually a faithful representation of what those texts are saying. He just does it in a way that's foreign to how we would expect a quote. And so um, there's places like that. More often than not, it is, uh, it is pretty similar to what you, what you would find um, in, in the Old Testament reference. But, but yeah, that is, uh, is something to, to watch out for. Matt? Um, one of the things we talked about a lot in women's Bible study the last couple of years is when we see direct quotes, because they're, so, they're obvious generally in the text, like we see those cues, and so oftentimes, though, we just leave it at that, like we recognize, we say, oh, that was from somewhere else, but we've been trying to, like in women's Bible study, make sure that we just be, have the habit of always going back to read that then in its original context, just to see what that writer was saying, so then it, the meaning of where we're seeing it quoted actually comes to its more full picture. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good to always do that, to always get in the habit of doing that. Um, one thing to also be aware of then is that the context, again, it's not just go back and read the single verse. The context right. is more often than not the entire chapter, section, story, um, psalm, whatever that it's quoting from, uh, the entire narrative of that part of scripture. And so it takes, again, being fluent in uh, the language of scripture and this sounds this sounds big and it is to to to, to just to be able to be fluent in a language if you've learned another language it takes a lot to be fluent um i love psalm one that that said blessed is blessed, says blessed is the one who meditates day and night on the instruction of god and um, almost the last year in our hebrews bible study going back over the guys in the hall of faith studying yeah. each person in the hall of faith <laughs> and what did they do and why are they there yeah, and so so our our journey our our journey on in, of reading the Bible and walking with Christ it really is a journey. And so our whole life it is day and night just meditating on the Word of God, um, being being filled with His Word, being 
informed by it and there's so many things that maybe you'll read something for the hundredth time and oh my gosh I just realized this connection that's why it's you know you don't just read the Bible once and then all right yeah I read that book um, I, you know, I my, my brothers asked me for why don't you get bored of reading the Bible why do you why do you you know you just study the Bible you just study the Bible all the time the answer is no I don't because every time I read there's something else that stands out if I just read this place in the Old Testament, I flip here in the New Testament. Oh my gosh, I just made this connection I didn't make before. And so uh, it's, a, it's a journey of reading Scripture over and over and being, uh, being fluent and familiar with what it's, uh, what it's talking about. Um, next, and this is kind of a, 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 on, on a tier basis, we have allusions. And allusions, I've talked about those a lot uh, in our study the book of Revelation is probably the most dependent of all the New Testament books on the Old Testament, and yet there's not one single direct quote. Um, the only thing John does is use allusions. So an allusion is when an author intentionally and deliberately references another text of Scripture through use of common words, phrases, themes, motifs, events, type scenes, figures, etc. Um, you could call it an intentional link. Uh, strong illusion, a clear connection, um, and, and so it's, it's, again, it's intended, and it's going to, they can do it through a whole lot of different ways, uh, we'll expand on that a little more about how we, how we recognize illusions, how we um, affirm them, but that's, at its, at its most basic, that is what an illusion is. And so then uh, underneath that, I haven't used this term. I was just doing some, some reading as I was preparing this, and I, I like using this. Uh, and so referring to uh, some things as an echo. Um, this would be a subcategory of illusions. It's identified as a more subtle literary technique. It may involve the inclusion of only a single phrase or a single word or an image that alerts the reader to the reference to an earlier text. Uh, it might you might call it a subtle or faint illusion. And so it's still an illusion, but it's, it's more subtle. It, uh, it, it can just be drawing on a couple of words or a, a common theme that is in maybe this book of the Bible or this part of a book. And so uh, it, it's something that is, is a bit more faint, but it's, it seems to still be, be there. And so uh, lastly, we have an analogy, which this is really, it's not its own category. It works in tandem with all of these other, um, the, these other literary strategies. But uh, it, it's going to be used in order to indicate some kind of, kind of analogy or parallel between two different texts, it, uh, like an intensification of something or a comparison or a contrast. And this is through the use of, of parallel plot structures or patterns or characters or settings or themes. Uh, this might refer to, be referred to as literary design patterns or type scenes. Um, the Bible Project has a really good video on that particular concept. I, I think it's called like how to read the Bible, uh, design, literary design patterns or designs in biblical narrative or something like that. Um, a, a good example is, uh, so, so a common, common setting. Um, you have settings in scripture that they're used over and over and each time it kind of draws to mind the same sort of thing like the wilderness. You think of uh, the wilderness especially 
um, in the Pentateuch, and it's a place of temptation and or, or, or testing, really. And uh, and so you start reading one of the Gospels, and Jesus is baptized, and then he's led out into the wilderness, and immediately you think, oh, he's going out into the wilderness. I wonder what's going to happen there. <laughs> and, and he's tested, um, but unlike the other. Uh, most of the other stories, he's tested in the wilderness, and he actually is faithful. He uh, he it goes above his testing. He does not succumb to uh, temptation or to sin. Um, he doesn't complain. He doesn't uh, rebel against God. And so there's connections there, or um, the, a common setting like the you have a royal uh, a royal throne room and a servant. Someone comes before the king. Joseph, Esther. Daniel, even Paul, um, or uh, Jesus goes before Pilate. And so you have these same sorts of settings which tie things together. And so uh, with all of that, how, how are we to identify these things? How are we to make sure that these are, are actually true illusions or connections, that uh, these links, this intertextuality is, is there? Uh, at its core, the most reliable measures for determining an illusion are verbal coherence, so similar vocabulary, uh, syntax and grammar, etc., and or thematic coherence, so common themes, motifs, images. Um, Greg Beale provides similar ground rules. He says, the telltale key to discerning illusion is that of recognizing an incomparable or unique parallel in wording, syntax, concept, or cluster of motifs. Continues when both unique wording, verbal coherence, and theme are found, the proposed illusion takes on greater probability. Recognizing illusions is like interpretation. There are degrees of probability and possibility in any attempt to identify an illusion. Um, in, your, in your handout there, I summarize the work of uh, a scholar named Richard Hayes, who he has seven criteria of sorts for determining the validity of an illusion. Um, a lot of those are, are similar. For one, there's the availability. Would this text have been available to the author and the readers? Um, would, would the author have been able to assume that his readers would be familiar with what he was trying to say? Um, and you have the volume of, of illusion or, or how loud it is, um, to, to put it that way. And so that's going to be based on the degree of explicit repetition or similar syntax or vocabulary. Uh, you have uh, other, other things like the, the place of that earlier passage. Is it a very well-known text? Um, something like, uh, like Exodus uh, 34 when God uh, reveals his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, um, who is compassionate, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Throughout the, that's a very, very important passage. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's quoted like so many times. And it's a very prominent passage. And so because it's a prominent passage, you can assume, oh yeah, it's, it's very clear that it's being referred to. Um, I won't go through all of those. They're, they're there, they're helpful. They're not, you know, they're not, there isn't really with all of this, there isn't um, a hard and fast set of questions you can ask for every single text to say, okay, well, this, is, this clearly is one and this isn't based on these seven criteria. They're more um, 
general ground rules. Ultimately, it's a case-by-case -case, um, basis. Um, the, the big thing, again, will be what, what Beale and others call um, verbal coherence and then thematic coherence, this, um, this similarity in common words and string of words, phrases. Um, if you're referencing the, the original languages, even the way in which the, the sentence is structured and the order of the words can, can point to that. And then uh, thematic coherence, it's talking about the same themes, it's talking about, um, this, it's using the same images or characters or motifs. What do you think the purpose of illusions are then? <clears throat> the perfect purpose yeah, of illusions? say like two things are alike. Like we see Christ in the Revelation, yeah, yeah. There, it can be. A, there can be a lot of different purposes. Um, it depends on on what the author is is trying to do, and you can even just seeing the way that scripture quotes. If you look specifically at the quotes, um, they're used for a bunch of different reasons. I talked about Matthew. He's using these to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Um, sometimes it can be to, to stress an important truth. I, in early in our study when I talked about um, what I've called shared truth, I mentioned how in, in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, Paul uses this text um, from the, the law about not, uh, not essentially allowing uh, an oxen to eat while it's working. And he uses that to say, feed your pastors, pay your pastors. So he can use it to um, make some sort of similar point in meaning. They can use it for, um, for moral imperatives. They can use it for um, just general truths. They can use it just even in, in structuring their argument. Maybe they're, 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 not, they're not even using it. To, to show fulfillment or to show something that's just the, the vocabulary of the, the, their vocabulary and their thinking is so entrenched in the Old Testament that that's just the way that they, they talk almost. Um, and so, yeah, there can be a lot of different reasons and, and that's part of analyzing uh, a particular illusion and, and it's what in, uh, I, I mentioned those criteria that um, Richard Hayes points out in the, the seventh one, he talks about uh, the, the, the satisfaction of it. And so does, if you're going to say this an illusion, does it make sense that he would be alluding this particular passage? Does it fit in the immediate context? But not only does it fit, does it illuminate the surrounding context? Can you show um, how it, it, it fits into everything around it? Does it enhance the rhetorical force or the, the, the argument being made? Does it result um, in a satisfying account of why he would use that illusion and how that illusion would, would have an effect or have, have, a, uh, have an impact on the reader? And so there's a lot of things you can be thinking about. And, and again, this isn't, maybe this, come, this, this just seems, seems so scary to like read through, through those things and think, oh my gosh, do I have to answer all these questions and prove all these things and be able to say this is, a, to be able to say this is a delusion. And no, you don't. These are just good kind of shaping questions, shaping points that, that show us how uh, the, the biblical authors are going to use scripture and um, they also are, are helpful for showing us how we can responsibly read scripture and not just 
pull things out of our, you know, out of our hat and say, oh yeah, here, look at this. Well, not only that, I think maybe only my opinion, but it adds to the cohesivity of the Bible. Oh yeah, as yeah. A whole, that uh, it's meant to be together. Exactly. It's not meant to be taken out of context. Exactly. Out of context of the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah, and that was we talked about that a little bit last week with with Revelation and yeah. uh, what. We call it an inclusio. You have the very beginning and the very end, which is all about a garden. And so there's that cohesiveness, that connection. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. For me, often I think when at its simplest level, when I make connections with illusions, it's, it gives me a better picture. I see the scripture is trying to show me what God has been doing all along. Kind of that picture, just like a... a like playing a slideshow in my brain then of all these things he's been doing, all the ways he's been faithful or something about who he is. It's just bringing all of that kind of to a place where it's just like all at once just be flooded with those images and that from just other places in the scripture. So just to kind of summarize this whole thing, um, I made kind of this continuum, this spectrum and when we talk about the way that uh, the Bible uses uh, this strategy of intertextuality, there is a spectrum of expli- explicitness to a more subtle uh, subtleness. And so on the very explicit side, you have a quotation or a direct reference. It's very clear what they're doing here. They're maybe using this introductory formula as it is written or as it is said in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And it's, uh, it's very, very clear what they're doing and it becomes very explicit, very noticeable. And as you keep moving along, there's, a, it's, it's a very strong connection. It's a clear illusion. It's not uh, as explicit as a direct quote because you don't have the kind of verbatim repetition of these words or this introductory formula, but it's very clear. And then you keep moving along and you have um, what I've called these echoes. This is just these underlying kind of hints and um, themes and motifs and phrases that point towards, uh, point towards something. Um, and that's what I was wondering. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this also happens when, when you have... Um, when you, when you have something that is very prominent in the Old Testament, something like the day of the, day of the Lord, uh, it's, a, it's just a common phrase. And but every time it says the day of the Lord, it, it, it might not bring to mind a specific text, but it's bringing to mind kind of this concept and this theme that's been carried out in scripture. Um, another, another example, you keep talking about water in Revelation. Water How about in Revelation. The ocean or whatever. Um, the ocean, I guess, is not a very good place. But yeah, and that's, 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 how, that's kind of drawing in the analogy. Um, okay. You have, for example, when, when, Jesus, uh, when Jesus flees from, uh, well, Joseph and Mary flee from, um, let me just turn there in Matthew, they, they flee from, the, from Herod. And then they return out of Egypt. It's, 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 it's more subtle, but it's still a part of Matthew's strategy to, uh, to connect this all to the Old Testament. You have, um, let's see, 
Uh, yeah, Matthew, Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. And so he then uses a direct quote. But does that, does that ring any bell? Does that like draw something out? Just that the picture of ch- child is going to be destroyed, take him, and he goes, and it's something about Egypt, something about a king. Yes, yeah. the 10th plague. Yes, and so there's, uh, there's just those underlying, more subtle connections is, is that helpful at all, or there? Okay, and there's yeah, there, it's just a, a and a lot when when you get to echoes, it's a lot of that is as I as I was talking about using that metaphor of like vocabulary, being familiar with the vocabulary of scripture. Um, sometimes it is is just a part of the authors. Uh, they are so rooted in the vocabulary of scripture that they just talk in the language of the Bible, and so. Um, we have some of these things in Revelation where there's very clearly explicit uh, allusions. And then there's also times where it's, it's not necessarily as explicit, but it still seems to be uh, underlying, uh, underlying, um, underlying allusions to the Old Testament. So something like, let me find it, the use of the, the, the name of God, uh, the Lord God Almighty, um, especially the the way that it's written in Greek, it's it's the way that the Greek translation of the Old Testament always puts a certain name of God, and it's used a few times in the prophets. And so, just things like using that name, you, writing the same way, it's just it, there's this connection. It's not it's not necessarily a, a, about a, it. It is intentional. Um, it's not as key to his argument per se, or it's not that he's, he's necessarily drawing on that to, to make some huge point. With Echoes, a lot, of, a lot of it is seeing the unity, the cohesiveness, the connectedness of the entire scripture, the way in which there's these echoes throughout, throughout the Bible. Maybe it could be something like uh, at Pentecost, when they have that little flame on the fire. Just makes you think of the other fires. Yeah. But it's not like it's For not sure. like all the other fires, but it takes your mind back to those other fires. Yeah. Yeah. That's another good example. So, I mean, I guess if they're subtle, some of them might be language based. Like, would we need to have some understanding of like, how the word sounded in Hebrew or Greek? Yeah. You know, when we listen to certain yeah, people speak, they talk about like, well, that's very similar to. That name is very similar to that word, which means fool, or something like that. Yeah. So we don't know. Like, I wouldn't get that. There is, there are some things that you, um, that you miss out on if you do not, uh, if you aren't reading in the original languages. Uh, This is the word of God, and you can get the meaning, and even most of the illusions, and that's why in that chart, um, if you look at the third third uh, row, the reader's comprehension, when you have a quotation or citation, it's it's assumed. Like you you have to if you don't if you don't pick up on it, 
you're going to miss something. There's an illusion. It's expected that you get it. Um, you are still going to miss something, but it's not, you, you will probably still be able to get a big picture idea of what is, um, what is going on. If you have uh, an echo or a faint illusion, um, it's intended by the author, but it's, it's hoped for. It's not expected or assumed that you will pick up on it. Um, might require a lot of rereading and then finally, oh my gosh, I see this, this connection. Uh, and some of those things, that might be language-based, that might be a, a connection that, oh, I'm just reading along and, oh yeah, I, I, I was reading in Greek and I see this, this use of this name here and that's how it's used here and, okay, cool. And it's, it, it's but it, that, the, the echoes, the further along you get on the continuum, um, it has less, less impact on the meaning and getting the fullest sense of what the author is communicating. Yeah, so no, that's, that's a really good question and that's, uh, that's it, it's something that, yeah, I never want to, uh, to, to communicate that no, you can't fully understand it if you aren't reading in, in Greek and Hebrew because you can. You can, well, you can't fully understand it, but even if you're reading in Greek and Hebrew, you can't fully understand it. You can't fully understand uh, the, the riches of God's word, and so what you have in English is, is a faithful representation of uh, the meaning of God's word, and you can pick up on the vast majority of those, and the ones that you can't, they're, they'll be cool. Um, they're not gonna be life-changing. They're not gonna be, be something that, um, you know, they're things that I think are really cool because I'm a nerd, but that, that they are, yeah, they're not going to have a, a drastic impact on anything. So I liken some of that to not being able to see, like in the English, that there's an acrostic in Hebrew. It's, it's neat if you get to see it in Hebrew, but it's not going to change your understanding of what's being written in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Is that in the way of, you know, how when it says you should add or take away? And I know that a lot of Greek words do not translate into English. So, how does that fit into Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I was going to bring that up, and I'll I'll bring that up. I'll I'll hit that when we when we walk through the text. So I'll I'll talk about that for sure. Um, but yeah, there's again just the summary chart with the different types of connections, quotations, allusions, echoes. You can see how they correlate to kind of that that spectrum. Um, the level of communication. It's explicit. The illusion is more implicit, and then it's going to be subtle with an echo. Um, we talked about the reader's comprehension and then the author's technique. Um, there, with a quotation, it's going to be a direct quotation, citation, and then the other two, it's going to be use of keywords or themes or phrases uh, from the source text. You might have an analogy that is, is being drawn out. Um, so, so hopefully that is, that is helpful in thinking about the way that the Bible is interconnected, uh, this, is, it, this is important. This isn't just something that you, know, you should only con be concerned about if you're, you're a theologian or you're a scholar. Uh, intertextuality is important because it's one of, if not the most common literary strategy used by the biblical authors to convey meaning and intention in their text. They actually, uh, again, it's important because they are conveying meaning through using these, these intertextual connections. It's also one of the reasons that the more you read the Bible, the more you get out of it. Yeah. Uh, the more you know it, the more you recognize all that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, yeah, and it helps. Uh, there, there's many different techniques that they use to reference earlier texts. There's many different purposes and reasons why they do it. Ultimately, it all provides unity to the scriptures and it reveals the, the beauty and the depth of the Bible. This is one of the, one of the most amazing things and reasons that I love this so much is, is seeing the interconnectedness of the entire scriptures. It, it, it just convinces me that there's no way that this is, this is uh, not from God. It is too, uh, too, too incredible, too perfectly united to not be divinely inspired. And so buying, by being aware of this concept and the things connected to it, we will be better prepared to faithfully read and understand the triune God's eternal and precious word contained within the Holy Scriptures and to do so for the rest of our lives as we continue uh, returning back. So hopefully this is, uh, this is helpful. Um, there's a, a lot of information there. And then next week, uh, I wasn't able to completely finish it for this week. But next week, I have, it's going to be a big handout of all of the weekly handouts that I've been giving on the allusions and parallels within Revelation. And so it's going to have contained every single, um, at least what I have found, uh, every single allusion or echo or um, parallel passage. It's going to contain references to other places in the New Testament that have a parallel teaching. And then what I'm adding in the process of adding to it now is connections within the book of Revelation. So it's going to be, um, but that will at least for the book of Revelation, which is a lot bigger than uh, a lot more dependent on the Old Testament, will give you a good starting place. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot there, but this is, it's, it, it's honestly, it's just so cool. Like seeing the way that the, the, the New Testament uses the old and the way that the, 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 the Old Testament uses the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and it's it's beautiful. So um, it's it's a very fruitful endeavor to spend time reading all of scripture and being uh, aware of what is going on. By oh yeah, you read this quote here by going back and and um, and looking at the context and what it's doing. So um, any questions there before we 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 move on to the rest of chapter twenty two? Okay. Well, we will. F- finally finish Revelation. We Again, we introduced uh, chapter 22, and then now we, we get to 22.6 and through verse 21, the rest of the chapter. And we read, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, in, in the rest of this passage, it, it can be a little hard sometimes to tell who it says, and he said to me, who is the he? Um, it's ambiguous. It could be Jesus. Or it also could be the angel who is, is communicating with John. Uh, there's times where it's very clearly Jesus, and other times where it's very clearly the angel. In this case, and Jesus said to me, or and the angel said to me, uh, it could be either. Um, I, I love, again, how it starts with these words are trustworthy and true. Mm-hmm. It said this several times in the last few chapters. This is in reference to, these words are in reference to not only uh, the, the things spoken just before it, but really to the entire book. It, it summarizes the entire book, which this is the word of God. This is trustworthy. It is true. And uh, now the book, what, what John has written, it contains the, the revelation of what must soon take place. 
that same phrase, what must soon take place. It was in, uh, used in Revelation 1, 1, and used several times throughout the book. And so, uh, actually, before we keep going, I did, did give you another handout. Uh, it's one, the one-page one, the conclusion, Jesus is coming soon. Uh, and one thing we talked about last week, and we've talked about it throughout our time, is how often an author will introduce themes at the beginning of a book and that'll be something that is prominent throughout the rest of the book. And so we, we've seen that in Revelation, themes introduced in chapter 1 and in the letters to the churches, they became themes that were prominent throughout the entire book. We talked last week about this other technique called an inclusio, when you take a common phrase or theme or message and it's repeated at the end, in the, the beginning and the end of a work. It emphasizes it, it draws attention to it. So I showed last week how you have that with the whole Bible on the macro level of the very beginning of Genesis and the very end of Revelation have uh, a lot of parallels and it points to the importance of that theme. Uh, in Revelation, we have something similar where the beginning of the book of Revelation has a lot of similarities to the very end. There's an inclusio. Chapter 22 serves as an inclusio to chapter 1. And so there's excuse me, a little table of those parallels. Uh, the first thing is, is the nature of this revelation. And, and one, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And here we have the Lord, the God of spirits, spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And Jesus later repeats that I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. There's a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written. And we'd spent some time dwelling on that phrase in the very beginning of chapter 1 and the importance of that. It's repeated very similarly in chapter 22. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this, the prophecy of this book. We have the phrase, the time is near, repeated in chapter 22. Uh, in chapter 1, John introduces himself. He says that he's on the island of Patmos. He heard something, he saw something, and then when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Um, in chapter 22, John, he is the one who heard and saw these things. When he heard and saw them, he fell, falls down. This time it's in front of an angel, and he's rebuked for that. Um, the address is to the seven churches that are in Asia. He's told, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Jesus says that the purposes of this, uh, this book is to testify, or the purposes of this revelation, rather, is to testify to you about these things for the churches. Uh, in chapter 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then Jesus says that I am the first and the last in chapter 22, that I, Jesus, am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then uh, in the very introduction to this work, John says, grace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, has a little doxology and says, amen. Ends the book, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So you see those parallels. It's pretty crazy how the same language and um, a lot of these same phrases are used, stresses, uh, several things. One, it stresses the nature of this revelation, who it's from, who it's about, what it's for. Um, the identity of Jesus is stressed. And also the timing. The time is near. 
which we we talked about for quite a quite a bit at the uh, one of our very first times together um, in one one the things that must soon take place and now in twenty two six the things that must soon take place um, he is very clearly alluding to Daniel, what Daniel uh, does in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 and 45. Uh, he is his vision given to King Nebuchadnezzar the, about the statue and the different, made of different uh, materials and then a giant rock, which is the kingdom of God, crushes it. Um, and Daniel says that these are symbolic of what is to happen in the last days uh, and then John says these are the things that are to happen um, soon the th- things that soon uh, must soon take place there's a very cl- clear verbal parallel there um, and what's significant about that is John is now saying these things that Daniel was talking about they're here they're imminent, and they're already starting to happen. They're being fulfilled. And so there's, there's several things stressed in both the introduction and the epilogue that, that point to part of what the book is about and part of the, the strategy John is using. And so those noting those things is significant there. It was constantly stressed to Daniel that when he was getting those, this is a long time from now. This is mm-hmm. going to be on down yeah. the road. This ain't happening tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then of additional significance, um, which I'll just throw in now, is in verse 7, we have this blessing. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's very similar to what you find in one three, where it is, uh, it's written, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So uh, here he cuts out um, reading aloud and hearing it's about keeping what is written in this book. And there's a lot, uh, a lot that is important there. We talked about this a little bit, but the book of Revelation is, is not just about the future. It's for us now. And so we are responsible to keep these words. We are responsible to, to what it calls us to do, we are responsible to do. And blessed is the one who keeps those words. The blessing being talked about is this future blessing received um, in the new creation. There's seven blessings in Revelation. There's seven times where it says, blessed is the one, and blessed are those. I noted them there. It's interesting that there are seven. We've talked about the importance of the number seven. Um, One commentator, Tom Schreiner, says this, given the significance of numbers in Revelation, especially the import of the number seven, 55 occurrences, seems significant that there are seven blessings. The sevenfold blessing probably signifies completeness and fullness in the blessing promised. The contents of the blessings are related to, or uh, contents of the blessings all relate to future reward promised to believers, to bliss they will experience after a period of testing. And so, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool that there's, there's seven of those blessings in it. These are the things that, that those who following the example of the slain lamb, following the call of the book to overcome those who overcome. Um, Those who overcome are the ones who ultimately keep the words of this book, and those who overcome are the ones who receive these blessings, who receive these promises. And so back to to chapter 22. Again, these things that must soon take place, 
This is important because it's emphasized at the beginning and end of the book. The things that must soon take place are happening soon and happening now. They are beginning to happen. They are inaugurated. And then verse 7, it switches to Jesus. He says that he is coming soon. He says that uh, he, he is clearly the one talking here. He's coming soon. He says this several times, actually, at the end of the book. Uh, down in verse 12, he says that again. Um, and then I believe in verse, uh, verse 20, he says it again. And so at the end of the book, something that's stressed, you can you note that because it's repeated three times, is that Jesus is coming soon. Well, what does that mean that Jesus is coming soon? Was he wrong? Because it's been 2,000 years. Um, what's going on here? Uh, one way to, to understand this, I, I think, that has some merit is seeing his coming soon as being unexpected. This is uh, mentioned in the Old Testament and also several times in the New Testament in the Gospels in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 and in uh, 1 Peter. Jesus will come like a thief in the night. even says that in Revelation 2. And so the second coming of Jesus, it is, uh, it is going to be unexpected. Uh, you can't put a date on it. You can't say that he's going to come on this day in this year. Uh, it's going to be unexpected, and thus every generation must be prepared and ready for Christ's return. Um, the other thing that, that goes into this, uh, Jesus' definition of soon is probably not our definition of soon. If we go to Second uh, Peter 3, I think we, we have some important insight in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heaven, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed continues, there's uh, relevance to our passage as well. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, especially important are those first verses I read that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Um, it is, I think, in some ways connected to talking about Revelation 20 and a thousand years. Um, one day is as a thousand years for the Lord. Uh, but when, when he says soon, I mean, if we use this, this um, comparison, it's been 2,000 years, it's only been two days. <laughs> so for God, so um, obviously he's outside of time and his timing is perfect. His timing is, uh, is right. And so we depend on that. We wait on that. Uh, our idea of soon is not necessarily his. And so I think that's important to note as well. Um, but the main call for all of us is to be prepared, to be ready. I remember being convicted uh, reading the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards who has a list of 70 uh, things that he says resolved to do something, to not do something, whatever. 
and one of them is uh, resolved not to uh, not, not to do anything that he would not uh, that he would not be willing to do if it were the last hour of his life. And I mean, I think about that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like how many things did I even do today that if it was the last hour of my life I wouldn't wouldn't have done. Um, but if we if we think about that in relation to uh, the coming of Jesus, I mean, we, we can't live lives that are just oh yeah he'll he'll come at some point I don't know I, I'll wait for him to come and actually Jesus I've got this this uh, this thing coming up next week that I really want to go to and you know all right Jesus I really want to get married before you come back so you know, don't come back how many things do we we just kind of live our lives and don't really even consider. Um, when Jesus might come and do we desire him to come right now uh, this week and so um, so yeah the, the call of this passage is, is to be ready for that uh, the next few few verses John he's the one who heard and saw these things uh, he has a similar uh, similar display of foolishness I guess as we saw in chapter 19 where he, he bows down to, to worship at the feet of a of an angel, and he's, he's quickly rebuked. Um, even even John might be awed by the, the the angelic messenger and what's going on. We're reminded worship God. Um, God is also Jesus, and we we see that in this section. Jesus is referred to in verse 13 as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Elsewhere in the book, when that phrase is used often the Omega and in the Old Testament. It's about God. It's about Yahweh. Um, it's about the Father. And now Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is God. In verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Similar to what it, what it said at the very beginning of the book, the time is near, but he's called to not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And that's significant, significant because we, we've talked about the connections to Daniel. In Daniel 12, after Daniel's visions, what is he told to do? He's told to seal up this vision. He is told to, uh, to, to contain it sh- uh, in, in 12.4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Until the time of the end. They're to be sealed up not to be fulfilled, not to be completely understood until the time of the end. And now, don't seal up the words. Leave them open so that uh, the churches, so that all of us can understand what is, uh, what is being prophesied, what is being declared, and so that we know these things are being fulfilled. These things are happening now. Again, that's connected to what must soon take place for Daniel, that was in the latter days. For John, it's now. For Daniel, it was don't seal these up until the end. For John, it was leave it open. The end is here. And so there's a lot of significance in that, especially in showing us that this book is it's not just about only the future, but this is, this is now. This is uh, partially realized and it is awaiting its full consummation but yet it is it is also partially partially realized so uh, there's there's a lot of significance in the way that he's building off of what Daniel uh, wrote 
and showing how it's completed. Yeah, I wonder if the soon is like, because our propensity is just to put stuff on. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you wake up one morning and you're a young man and then wake up another morning and you're <laughs> and your whole life has passed away, right? And it's just like, the urgency on our part is like, if something's happening soon, it should be attended to. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just yeah. Associated yeah, there's urgency. Yeah, um, so one of the passages you're referring to is 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians. Uh, yeah, and Paul's, uh, Paul's vision caught up in the, the third heaven. Um, he heard things that cannot be told. I think part of it is the purpose for what they're writing and what they're writing about. Uh, in, in Revelation, it, it stands as the the fulfillment, the climax of, of prophecy, it stands as the as the uh, as the, the end of the Bible, and it's showing how these things in Daniel's day are inaugurated here. Um, yeah, there's there's very few visions of heaven in Scripture. It's it's quite interesting, and and Revelation, John's Revelation, is the most extended um, vision we get. There is similarities between the the visions, but. Yeah, I think that, that the, the bottom line with those cases is it's um, the, the, the purpose for what that vision was in, in First Corinthians, or sorry, Second Corinthians 12, um, Paul's, he's talking about the thorn in his flesh and, uh, and ultimately about the, the grace of the Lord being sufficient um, and boasting only in Christ. Uh, and John is is saying something for a different purpose, and so I, I think they would. I mean, I think from Paul's other writings, they would, they would both see themselves at, in the fulfillment of these things in the uh, in the end, so to speak. Um, what John is doing as the climax of all of these things is is a bit different than what Paul is writing about. I don't know. Does that does that help at all? I uh, yeah, I hadn't hadn't I hadn't considered that. Um, be willing to. Yeah, yeah, and I um, and I think one of the things that we see in the New Testament is with the resurrection of Jesus. That is the inauguration. That is what what John is building off of, and that's also what Paul and the authors of the Gospels see as as the um, as the the as the inauguration of these latter days is the the resurrection of Jesus, his exaltation. Uh, we are in the last days, and so uh, yeah, Paul wasn't. I don't think told to not to write about it because it wasn't the last days. He was told not to write about it um, for other for other purposes and, and yeah, perhaps like Paul's thing was like God's doing showing something to Paul to encourage him for the work he has to do, and that was just for him. Uh, yeah, and this is like this is a general message. Yeah, and, and and that's why he wants us to see it because we have work to do. We have things to do. Yeah, and this is the revelation which God revealed, uh, as I I talked about the, how it 
mentions in both the beginning and the end of the book. In verse 1 of chapter 1, it's the things that are being given to his servants to show them the things that must soon take place. And so this is to show, really by servants, it's, it's all of God's servants, um, all of God's people. And we talked about how the seven churches are the totality of God's people, the totality of the church. And so this is a, a specific message um, for all of God's people rather than a message just for, for Paul or just a revelation for Paul. Um, it's interesting that the use. angel uses the word servant. He says he's a fellow servant with John and the brothers and the prophets and everyone who keeps the words of this book. So it goes back to that servant picture mm-hmm. of everyone that's not God. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, in in verse, verse 11, it's interesting. He says, let the evildoers still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, the righteous still be right, and the holy still be holy. So is he uh, encouraging people to sin? What is, what is going on here? Uh, we have a, there, there's a, a, similar, um, a, a similar type of rhetorical uh, punch in Amos 4 when, uh, when uh, Yahweh himself says, uh, come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression, um, he tells them to to, to sin. And it's, but it's it's a very ironic. It's not a again. It's not just he's not just literally saying yeah yeah. I just want you to sin. But it's a very ironic as they are uh, they're they're so stuck in their transgression, so idolatrous and addicted to these uh, these anti uh, anti godly ways that these ungodly ways that he says aren't right, just keep on doing that then. And it's an ironic use. And yeah, it reminds me of Moses. Moses, when he prayed, when they're coming into the land, there's the two mountains. Yeah, he's yeah. He's like, make a choice. And then Joshua again to end his life. He's like, make a choice. And, and like, if that was your choice, then you're going to ask him. Yeah. I, I know this was that kind of And the other uh, connection, still in, he just referenced Daniel 12. I think that Daniel 12 provides this insight here. In Daniel, 10, Daniel 12, verse 10, uh, it says, At the time of the end, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Um, this is connected to what we've talked about through the entire book, what we saw in the messages to the churches. Let the one who has an ear to hear, hear. The counter to that, and this is seen in the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah 6, even in the ministry of Jesus, as he told parables, that there are those who will not hear, and in fact, hearing these things will only make them not hear even more. They will become hardened. They will become even more obstinate. Uh, Think about the hardening of Pharaoh as he continues to be hardened. And so um, part of this, I I think, is, is connected to this. The one who... The one who has ears to hear um, will, is righteous and holy, will continue to do these things. The one who is not, they will continue to, to sin, to be unrighteous. In Daniel 12, says that many will purify themselves and make themselves white. Many will act wickedly. The wicked will not understand. 
the wise will understand. The wicked will not have ears to hear. To put it another way, the wise will have ears to hear. And so in this passage, it's looking forward to the time of the end. Um, I just showed how the time is near, the time is now. So the evildoer, they're just going to keep doing evil. There are, it, it's, it's fulfilled. It is, uh, one, these events are, are determined in the sense that this is what was spoken about. Um, but it's, it's being fulfilled. The, will, the wicked will not hear. They will continue in sin. And so because of this, um, he says, just keep doing sin. Because that is what they're going to keep doing. Does that, does that make sense? I wrote down there's no last minute repentance. Yeah. And it's, Those that are going to hear are going to, like you said, he's coming suddenly. There's no last minute repentance. Yeah, when he comes, you don't get a, you know, a, a second chance. And so it's the, those who are, have ears to hear will hear. Those who do not are, are going to continue not hearing. And so, uh, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Uh, here, here's, here's an I actually, here's a, I, I just realized this, um, which is funny as I just now read this. Um, I'm working on a, uh, on a project for um, one of my Hebrew classes, and I'm translating Isaiah 35, and uh, it, it uses a similar uh, phrase about um, God will come with his recompense with uh, retribution and just an echo maybe just this connection mm-hmm. this and uh, and it also says something similar in Isaiah 40 and in Isaiah 62 um, similar theme similar language of God coming with recompense with retribution um, and he will but here it's Jesus who is coming Jesus is returning and he's going to repay each one for what he has done. The wicked will receive punishment. The righteous will receive blessing. They will receive, uh, they will receive the gifts of God. They will receive life in the new creation. This has been a theme throughout the book of, about the, the importance of works and judgment according to works. Your works are not what save you, um, but they are a condition of final salvation. If you did not prove your actual justification, the fact that you were regenerated by the Spirit, that you had saving faith in Christ, was not of your own work, but of Christ who, who paid for your sins and the Spirit who regenerated you, if that is true, you will do good works. And so whether or not you did good works proves was that a reality. And here, uh, as in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is a sense in which salvation, it's contingent upon these works. Not that it is what saves you, but it shows and it proves Um, whether or not you were saved to begin with. Uh, Verse 13, I talked about a little bit already the importance of of now applying this title to Jesus. How cool is that? That the Alpha and the Omega, it is Jesus. Uh, It speaks to his power to judge 
and to uh, reward and punish. He rules over all of history from the beginning to the end, from the first to the last, from the alpha to the omega, the A to Z. He rules over history, and because of this, he will make good on his promises. We can trust him. Um, this, this title is sandwiched right in between uh, two promises about future judgment. So he's coming soon, bringing his recompense, retribution. He's going to repay according to what you've done. So he's either going to bless or, uh, or curse. And then verse 14, there's a blessing on those who wash their robes, who get the right to the tree of life, who um, are entering the city by the gates. And he is faithful, will be faithful to do those things because he is the Alpha and the Omega. Um, outside the city, though, the, the city that we talked about last week in Revelation 21, outside the city are uh, the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexual immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Um, we talked about this, this sort of list last week and on all these different things. Um, he does use the, the term dogs. Uh, this isn't your cute, cuddly puppy. Um, dogs in the Bible are not good dogs. They're um, wild on the streets, dirty, uh, uh, vicious. They're not good. Uh, these are these dogs. The, the, the one who, essentially, the dogs are the ones who do not hear. They are the ones who, who uh, do not trust the Lord. They are outside the city. Outside the city, Revelation 21 is in the lake of fire, the second death. They are facing God's judgment eternally for their sins. Oh, I have, I have. Yeah. It's connected to like why he would say you know left the wrong key one. It seems like this is talking about Jesus is in his Jesus is gonna come. And it seems like it's over. It's just like the time to repent, like it's almost past. Yeah, and it's it's coming soon and so it hasn't it's not like it's it's kind of, it hasn't happened right yet, but it's really, really close, and close enough that, um, yeah, that, it, that, that there's this, this call, so. Yeah. I don't know, the way I interpret this is <clears throat> some people are just not going to believe even when they do know. So, huh? you know, you can see you're still not believe it, and you're just going to be in your, your, in your mess that you're in. <clears throat> Because it just sick to the part that, you know, like I said, once before, mother against daughter, sister against sister, and because those are the ones who just don't believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can do We can do all that we can to share the gospel, to live the gospel, and some people are still not going to accept it for what it is at face value. Yeah, it's like Pharaoh. Who, there's there's connections here with Pharaoh who sees the power of God and is hardened. I think you're right too, Gina. Just thinking about all the ways, like the Bible from the very beginning establishes there's two two lines. There's the the seed of the wicked and the seed of the righteous, and there's not in between. Like along the way, there's not. It's not like oh, you're in the middle and just kind of hopefully you figure it out. Like you're one or the other. The way the Bible talks about it, like you're just from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Well, I was looking at if you go forward to 17, 
In 16, uh, these are the things that the angel is testifying for the churches. The churches include us. Um, Jesus is the root and the descendant of David. Isaiah 11, he's the bright morning star. In verse 24, I love verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. The one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And obviously the key here is the word come, the imperative to come. Um, I think it, in, in some people think that the first two it's talking about kind of an imperative directed towards Jesus. Okay, Jesus, come back. And then the third, the one who is thirsty, come back. I think it makes more sense if these are all um, calls. Essentially, you could, you could substitute the word here. The spirit and the bride say here. Let the one who hears say here. Let the one who is thirsty here. Let the one, uh, this is about... Um, Hearing still that the message that is uh, that is is being proclaimed and and the message for those who hear the one who do have ears to hear they call others to hear they call others to come in the same way um, it's a, an evangelistic sort of effort or even those who maybe are are in the church who are are compromising or who are are being unfaithful, still calling them to, to come, calling them to hear, uh, and and this is, and calling them to come means coming to Jesus, receiving the waters of life without price, alluding to Isaiah 55. Um, to come is is to give one's life to Jesus Christ as Lord, and so it's this full submission to God. And so whether or not it's, it's someone who is, is just compromising or who is um, backsliding or someone who is uh, not yet in Christ, it's this call to continue to come. I, I love seeing that then in connection with Matthew 11 and Jesus' call to come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. And so Jesus gives, give, gives ultimate rest here. And um, as we get to these last couple of verses, Gene asked about earlier, um, there's this, this warning, this stern warning. The eye is probably still Jesus talking. Uh, do not add to the words of the prophecy of this book. There's actually this, this cool, uh, ironic twist. If anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described here. If anyone takes away God will take away their share. And so uh, adding to the, 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 the words or taking away, uh, I don't think this is, this is talking about um, things like translation or things like uh, textual criticism, which is um, the, the, the process of determining the reading of the original texts in Greek and Hebrew. There's a this complex process of using the manuscript evidence we have available to reconstruct and to figure out um, what the original said. Um, and there's times where you, you, know, you, you cut things out or yeah, this was added here or no, this needs to be added. Um, 
working through some of that stuff right now as I work on this Isaiah 55 project. And, and that, that's not what it's talking about. That, that stuff is, is necessary, is uh, important in, in understanding the Bible. Um, I think more specifically here, we need to see this in connection with uh, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4, uh, 4, 12. Oh, wait. 4, 4, 2, sorry. Um, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Um, and here's so this call from, from Moses to the Israelites to obey the words God has given them to not um, add to them here, nor to take away. Uh, I don't think that the danger here is that they would, um, you know, in the middle of the night they would sneak in and you know try and etch something else in on the tablets, add to the words, or that they would go and they'd try and erase something because they didn't like it. Uh, I think it's when we talk about the the word of God and the message it communicates. There's room for even disagreeing about what things say, but I think there's a, a deliberate here. There's this deliberate adding to, this deliberate taking away from uh, the message of Scripture. I think it, uh, it, there's also the connection in similar thing in Deuteronomy 12, um, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And so it's about following God's word and about um, doing it. And so if there, there are things that you, uh, you, you deliberately uh, fail to do or you deliberately fail, uh, fail to uh, believe or trust, or things that you, you, you seek to change. I think that is, is what's in mind here. A, a, a big part of it, I think, has to do with, with false teaching and those who, who would twist God's words and who would add to it or subtract to it in their, uh, in their, their false doctrine, their, uh, their, their heresy. And they... Uh, they you see Jesus, Jesus like, reprimands the teachers and the Pharisees Like, what was that part where they're like supposed to take care of their parents? Yeah, yeah. You added something. Yeah, your tradition has nullified the word of God. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's uh, and and that phrase is it's used in Revelation. It's um, the ones who, ones who have washed the robes, the one who, who obey the commands of Jesus. Um, Jesus says that in, in John 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so, um, it's about obedience and about um, and about following what God has 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 said, not rebelling, not deliberately um, standing against Him or teaching what is contrary to that. Uh, I think this applies to all of Scripture. 
This applies not just to the book of Revelation, but to all of Scripture. And um, the, the important thing here is John places his book on the same level as Deuteronomy, which says those same things. And so John's viewing his, his work here as, uh, as on that same level. This applies to all of Scripture. Uh-huh. I mean, if I was getting my book straight from Jesus, I would <laughs> <laughs> <Up> it. <laughs> Well, in the aspect of when you're reading through the Bible form two, in my commentary it says that um, as far as do not add and subtract, it says that the revelation of the Lord is sufficient. So, yeah. That's good. Well, and and when you even when you when you even think about think about yeah when you even think about what uh, what Eve did because um, the serpent did God actually say and the woman says um, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, no, God didn't actually say that. He didn't say the part about uh, you shall not touch it. Um, or she, add, she adds in um, a piece here. And, and, and she also knows the word of God, the direct command of God. And she, uh, and she sins. She willfully goes against it. And so I think it's, um, it, it is, it's about knowing what God says, knowing what he has revealed, and willfully, deliberately going against that. Yeah. So, verse 13, it says, I am, 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 there are places like when it stands on its on its own, um, like John John eight, um, that that clearly is. Uh, yeah, it's just he has to use use the verb to say that I am something. Um, but but yeah yeah yeah. Um, and here we get to the last two verses. He who testifies to these things says, "Surely I am coming soon." Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Uh, ends with amen. Ends with this. Uh, amen means so be it. Let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. And then this extends grace. It ends the same way. This is how most letters end, right? Most of the letters in the New Testament end. Points to how uh, Revelation is formatted as a letter, formatted as, as the final address to the churches. It also points to the fact that we need the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus to be with us as we endeavor to keep these words. Um, these, these were, the, the entire book is, is written to the church, written to, uh, to correct and to encourage and exhort. We need God's grace in that. And so I love how it ends that way, that it ends with, uh, the entire Bible ends with this prayer for the Lord Jesus to come and then this, uh, this request for his grace to be with us. Uh, it's a, be- a beautiful ending there to the entire book.
picture that like a doxology, even like the end of a church service, you know, Jesus yeah. says, I'm coming soon, and the congregation saying, amen, come yeah. Lord Jesus. Maybe we should, uh, should try that. Right. So. Next Sunday, everyone be ready. <laughs> so if I throw that out, you're ready with the amen, come Lord Jesus. So, so it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful ending to the book, a beautiful, uh, beautiful way to wrap it up. Um, we didn't get a chance to, to recap everything I wanted to. I wanted, what, I, what I hope to do then next week is spend some time, and we can maybe do a little bit of this now if you have to go, that is okay. Uh, but we finished the whole book, 22 chapters. It's a pretty good-sized book. Um, it's a complex book. We've spent, spent a few months on it now. Uh, talking about back to a big-picture view of the book. So maybe think about, um, maybe you had a chance to reread the entire book over the last week or you'll get to do that in the upcoming weeks. It would be a good thing to try and get, uh, get a big picture view again. Uh, I, and I asked you to do this at the beginning of our study. Think about, I'd like you to think about it again. What is the message John is communicating? What is, uh, what is the, the goal? Um, what is the goal, the purpose? And so there's two things. What is the message? What is uh, the content? What is he trying to say? And then why is he saying it? Um, I, I won't go through all the, all, I had some quotes, which I can show next week, but um, here was the, the statement I gave when it comes to the main idea. So the triune God will be glorified through both salvation and judgment, one day returning to claim ultimate victory over his enemies, Therefore, believers can persevere in the midst of suffering and temptation. Uh, acting as a summary of the message of the book. And then uh, the purpose of the book, I'll skip these uh, comments from people. Uh, the purpose, the why, John's purpose is threefold. To reassure suffering believers of God's sovereign, sovereign control, future return and ultimate victory. To warn them against compromise and to exhort them towards faithful, worshipful, and hopeful living, all by displaying the glory and sovereignty of the triumph God. Um, so to reassure, to warn, and exhort, for short. Um, and so that just, yeah, just be thinking. And now that we, we've reached the end, and we'll, we'll, take, uh, we'll take a few minutes to reflect on um, a couple of these things. We've reached the end. What have been... What have been the biggest takeaways? What have been, for you, the, the most impactful parts, uh, maybe the most eye-opening, the most challenging, the most confusing? Um, does anyone want to hop in and just what, what they've appreciated the, the most in, in getting to study the book of Revelation? Something kind of crystallized for me this morning and it's even more crystallized now. There's a recurrent theme throughout the Bible about us being exiles from the world to begin with. But first of all, all Israel went to Egypt, and they were given up hope pretty much. Um, they needed somebody to come along and say, God has not forsaken you. Promises are still coming. And then Moses let them out. They went to Babylon, and all through, well, that was, the prophets were stating that from the beginning, that God has not forsaken you. You're going to spend your time, you're going to spend your time as exiles, but I'm going to bring you back. And... And this is the moment fulfillment of it all. We're exiles here, but God, we're not forsaken. God's coming for us. Mm -hmm. 
Anything else that really uh, impacted you in getting to study the book? The fact that we're in it now, I didn't see it that same way. Mm -hmm. That they're referring to what we're going through. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say this and then I'm going to go. <laughs> the predestination and that whole, all of that, you know, is still, is, is you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to be taken up and this, it changed my perspective on being taken up, you know, as to which one that I actually want to believe that I fit into. Um, so that changed my perspective quite a bit about tribulation. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so. Anything else that uh, that you were particularly impacted by, um, or anything that you, you want to add about how Revelation has impacted your life as you've read each week? Um, how will this book impact you moving forward? Uh, when we read Scripture, it's one thing to uh, acknowledge this is what it means, this is what it says. But we have to respond to it, and that is, is what Revelation uh, in particular calls us to, to not just hear the words, but to keep them. And so um, what does in your life it look like moving forward to keep the words of Revelation? Maybe you haven't had time to think about that. Maybe you have had things so you've been studying throughout these weeks that have, have changed you, but, but moving forward, uh, think about that. How, how will you keep the words of Revelation? I think for me, one of the things I've thought a lot about in reading Revelation and being here is thinking about um, being convicted that I don't often live my days out with this in the forefront of my mind and wanting this more than anything else and seeing forever with Jesus as like my whole, the whole of my life. And when I read, when I get to sit here and we read this, like, I feel like my heart is going to explode inside of me for the goodness and beauty of what it is, the picture that God gives us of that. And I should read it every day to remind myself. Anything else that has really impacted uh, just your faith and your, your life? I started out thinking you were a genius. <laughs> Rapture. I've been studying for probably 30 years, and I don't know what books I was reading, but I never read from your perspective. And I thought you were teaching falsehood at the beginning, and I almost dropped this class. But I went home and prayed and asked God to, you know, bring me the truth, not to take my ears, like I think I probably came hoping. And He really gave me a peace, and I. Um, and really see things from your perspective. And all the scriptures that I thought were rapture could be the second coming. I mean, that, that was an eye-opener. And I've really learned that a lot of it's parallel, which I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. And that um, it's repetitious sometimes, because I was thinking, you know, that sounds, <laughs> I didn't understand that. So that was great. And um, I'm not sure 
that I totally bought into that. I, I like to hang on to it. <laughs> <laughs> You're really nice if you guys are right. But um, I still way. think you're genius. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And yeah, and, and, and I were talking about you're going to be a great theologian. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, the, the goal of this was not to, to convince you that, that I'm right, and, and maybe the most impactful thing wasn't anything I said. Maybe it just made you even more convinced that you know, what you held was, was right, and that's, that's totally okay. Again, wanted to emphasize as well that this isn't, you know, um, isn't the end-all, be-all in terms of the, the marks of who's a Christian, who's not. Um, the, my goal is, is to try and be faithful to, to Scripture. So, um, so yeah, I, I have a lot to learn, and, um, and we all have a lot to learn. So, so I, I hope that, uh, that this, is, and this type of format has all encouraged us to, to study God's Word closely and to uh, pay attention and to not, um, to, to not be, be convinced of, you know, that we are, we are right on everything. Some of the um, people I've been influenced by the most, uh, there's a few scholars in particular who are just such great examples of humility and seeing them change over time as they realize, oh yeah, that, I'm not as convinced about that, that position as I once was, or, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not fully sold on this, and um, so, so yeah, there's, there's a humility that, that we, we are to have uh, as we walk through the journey of, uh, of reading scripture for the rest of our lives, so, um, so yeah, and so um, I'm, I've been so thankful for this opportunity, so thank you. I know we're not, not completely done yet, but for, uh, for hanging in there and for listening to, uh, to me for the past several weeks. Um, we will, we'll talk about this more next week, and it's one of the things I, I wanted to mention. Um, Gary and I, and, and, and Gary, who hasn't been able to, to be a part of the teaching, we, we talk about all this, and, um, and he does... Uh, he is on the so he's on the same page as me. We've been talking about wanting to do this sort of thing um, almost every Sunday to, to consistently be having these sorts of uh, of times where we can get together and study God's Word or study um, you know study a book of the Bible or study a topic or talk about how to how to read Scripture or a theological topic. And so um, one of the things that I'll, I'll ask for your feedback and I'll have kind of some handouts that you can you can fill out and we'll have some time and you can give them back to me. You don't have to write your name, so if you do want to say that I'm the worst, you can. Um, but we would just love your feedback on, on the format, on the style, on things that you'd be interested in talking about in the future, um, things that you'd be interested in studying. And um, the, the, the goal is that we would, we would really cultivate uh, in, in our church a, a, a culture that is uh, that, that values studying God's word together that values um, really thinking about things that, that we understand that theology and and studying God's word it's not you know it's not just for people like me who I, I get to go to seminary or for scholars who get to go write books that we're all theologians we all have thoughts about God and it's important that we think right thoughts about God, and it's important that we know what God's word says, and it's important that we are, we are fluent in God's word, and so um, 
Gary and I and, and some of the other elders, we've just been, been hoping that we can start doing something that will, will cultivate this, uh, this attitude among us, that it's seeing these things as important. And so, um, so yeah, I appreciate you guys as, as you've been kind of the guinea pigs for this, this sort of thing. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll grow and, and do some other things. But, but yeah, next week we'll talk about that a little more. Um, I mentioned that handout that I'll, that I'll have. And then we'll also look back over uh, the book of Revelation and talk some more about themes and biblical theology and some other um, concepts throughout the entire Bible, which culminate in Revelation. So um, there'll be some good stuff there. But, um, but yeah, unless any, anyone has anything else to add uh, just about the impact or, or how this, is, uh, this has affected them, then we can uh, call it for the week. The main things that stand out to me matter are that some of the exhortation of Jesus to the seven churches. Yeah. I love the exhortations of the churches. I and I mentioned this before. I love the um, the hymns or the prayers in the book. I spent um, a week just trying to every day pray through all of the the prayers in the book or the um, the songs of worship. And wow, like that was just incredible uh, for my own spiritual uh, spiritual health. Just to to pray those words. It's um, beautiful. And the yeah the. Praying scripture, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not as creative sometimes, and I, there's always things to pray for, but it is just, it's nice to pray the words of scripture, and it's, um, they're beautiful, so. Well, that's what praying in the spirit means, is to pray what Christ wants you to pray, pretty much. Yeah. That's why, if you're praying in the spirit, your prayer's going to be answered, because if you're praying what you're supposed to be praying, that's one of my prayers all the time, is to help me to Pray what I should be praying instead of what I what I what I think I should be praying, yeah. Yeah. which isn't always the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes rarely the same thing. <laughs> well, it's very similar to like a, a God's plan. Yeah. Like, okay, plan. Like it's like the Adam's and God has a plan. He wants to build his plan. Well, yeah. Well, that's why. Right. Yeah. A whole lot of prosperity, God. Pray for God to bless your plans. Don't be blessed because you're following His plan. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, we will uh, we'll get back together next week. I'm looking forward to that. So it was great to see you all again. Yeah.